Hello, welcome to Through the Line, the Agency Squared podcast hosted by me, Andy Barjuri. In this episode, I have a great conversation with my friend Dan Rhodes. And Dan sold his branding and design agency to another agency about uh, 13, 14 years ago. And really why I wanted to get him onto the show was to talk about how do you as an agency owner get your shop ready for sale? How do you get match fit, as he called it? And Dan talks about his experiences of finding an investor, a buyer, engaging advisors, working with solicitors and accountants and all that good stuff. And he shares a load of rich advice, useful for any agency owner thinking of an exit, thinking of putting themselves up for sale. I hope that you enjoy the show. Dan, good afternoon. Afternoon, Andy. How are you? I'm all right. How are you, sir? Yeah, very well, thank you. It's a few years since we last got together and had a good conversation, I think. Uh, yeah, we, yeah. We were pitching to that clothing brand, I think, that we uh, we tried to get some work out of a few years ago. Yes, yeah, that was an interesting one. Yeah, shame that didn't come off, but um, yeah, it was certainly a, a good one to explore. Such is the nature of agency life, I suppose. You win some and you lose some. Absolutely. Yeah. So thank you for coming on to the show today. I think we're going to put it out as maybe definitely a podcast and maybe a few video excerpts we were just chatting about. Uh, but thanks for coming on. What, what I was really keen to explore with you, Dan, is not the uh, area of your deep subject matter expertise, which is branding, because I know we could talk about that for quite some time. But what I really want to explore is um, the the path to selling an agency because you sold your agency Daniel Rhodes uh, Communications a few years ago now and I know given the kind of climate that we're in that there's probably quite a few agency owners wondering about should I sell can I sell how do I sell what does that look like and it would be fabulous just to to get your take on that how did it go what, what was it what was it like uh, <laughs> and all that good stuff Sure. Um, so hopefully that's okay with you, Dan. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Well. Um, yeah. If I, I tell you what um, our story is, uh, um, an agency. So the actual the actual sale of the agency was in took place in two thousand and seven. So thankfully, just before the crash. Um, so if I go back, um, give you a bit of history. We've been trading since nineteen eighty nine. Uh, under Rhodes Design. Um, and leading up to the sale, we got into a position as an agency where we either had to, um, business was declining, um, and uh, and that was for a number of reasons. So the market conditions were pretty poor then. We'd come to the end of a, a number of uh, contracts or, or projects, uh, than their natural life. There was also, we managed to get on rosters of lots of public sectors, uh, public sector work, uh, Department for Transport, Department of Health, Office of the Deputy Prime Minister, various other bodies, um, which was a strategy I put in place a few years earlier because I wanted to balance out. We were doing a lot of blue chip work, okay. um, but I wanted to um, kind of have a nice balance between that work and public sector, which, although it may not be quite as uh, profitable, it's um, there are budgets there and it can be regular work. A bit more stable as well. You know, you, you're going to get paid eventually. <laughs> I yeah. Think. Yeah, absolutely. And 
It was an incredibly painful process. I mean, it took to get on Department of Health specifically took four years to get on their roster. Um, it was a horrible process. Uh, once we got on, it was brilliant at the beginning. Um, and then things started to ebb away, not because of our work, but the way that they were structured in their procurement was quite peculiar. So you built relationships with different people and then you found out they would only work one and a half days a week and oh, over to someone else. And so it got a bit confused. Um, so although, although we had these, this kind of nice mix of blue chip SME and public sector work, um, as I said, the, uh, the public sector work started to dry up for various different reasons. Um, the, the, the project-based work started to, uh, a lot of them seemed to um, come to an end at a particular the same similar time. So we were left in a position where, um, although we were doing pretty well, the, the, uh, the curve was, was going downwards, and obviously I didn't want that to continue. So I saw the options as either um, reinvest, for growth or look at an exit yeah. now, my concern about an exit was because the trajectory for the agency financially was sliding slightly it wasn't falling off a cliff but it was going down rather than up I thought well okay well am I going to get the value that I want from the agency um, but it just so happened while I was mulling these thoughts over I um, actually saw an ad in design week for a group looking for a, to acquire an agency. So what? Well, there's no harm applying here. Yeah. I was going to ask you where did the lead come from, but yes, I've not seen that people advertising like that before. No, it, it was really strange, and I, and I I rarely used to look at the classified ads, other than to uh, get some sort of feel what the uh, the going salaries are for my team. So when they come with their uh, their uh, begging bowl, that I I've got some semblance of uh, idea of whether they're taking the piss or not. Um, so I answered the ad, and it was a bit like, uh, you know, answer, well, I suppose it would be Tinder today, but it was a bit like answering a personal ad. Um, and then it, it did very much turn into um, a kind of uh, almost like a dating relationship. Okay. Um, yeah. Was the advert placed by the acquiring agency, or was there an intermediary that was just kind of fishing broadly to find for their clients? There was an intermediary. It was a uh, finance house okay. um, that acted on behalf of the client. Um, so I answered it. We shared some details, and then we met for our first date, which uh, which went pretty well. And um, and then that progressed, and eventually led to them acquiring uh, the agency in two thousand and seven. Oh, I say it was quite a timetable. Time period four years in between that initial responding to an advert to. Oh no no sorry no um, no that period was about between first contact and um, popping the champagne was about, was over a year. It was about 18 months. Okay, 18 months. Okay. Uh, yeah, 12 to 18 months. So how many meetings did you go through? So you met the finance house first or did you go straight to meeting with the agency the client? I met with both of them. We met for, we met for lunch, um, very nice lunch actually. Um, <laughs> they were great, you still remember the lunch. A great lunch, some really good wine. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just like a date really, it's just trying to get me drunk. Um, and that went well. And I think that is so important. You know, it's, um, I wasn't desperate enough that I would want to, uh, forgive the pun, get into bed with anybody with this. It was going to be a, um, a relatively long-term relationship because 
they were talking about acquiring us and we would um, uh, eventually merge and become uh, trade under their banner. So I had to feel comfortable with the MD and the board uh, and I'm happy working with these guys. And, uh, and I was, and it, it worked quite well. And um, it took a lot longer than I thought. I thought three months, six months tops, but it, it did drag on. Um, and I think if you are looking at an exit, I think you need to be realistic about timescales as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, that three months feels very ambitious, as you found out when you yeah. delivered it. So how, how many meetings then did you have to, before you felt, you know what, this is going to work for me? I feel quite comfortable that you know, the, the CEO and the, the leadership team at the acquiring agency was kind of aligned to you. And yeah. at what stage did you start to talk about a possible valuation and a kind of exit package? The valuation came very early on. Um, it's difficult to remember exactly. I, I think the next stage, the next time we met was at their, um, at their studio, their offices, so I could get a feel for their environment and their people. Um, and the financial offer came in um, pretty soon after that. Um, we had, I think we broadly touched on it, but obviously that had to be an exchange of my, uh, my accounts and, uh, filing history and that they had to do a little bit of due diligence. Um, and then the offer came in and then, you know, a bit of negotiation and then we uh, agreed upon a figure, um, something in my naivety, which I, I would recommend people watch out for, um, which is a real no-brainer now when you think about it, and I'm um, surprised how, uh, how naive I was about it. Um, the valuation um, and the offer on the table moved with the management accounts. So although you know, they, they, they'd made an offer on a certain set of accounts, and as things moved, and as I said, we, we, were, we were dipping a little bit, yeah. as the next quarter dipped a bit, then that was reflected in the offer and that's not something i really have, have thought about i mean it makes perfect sense and you can't really argue about it, especially if you're an acquirer yes absolutely i mean in your mind it was a fixed price i've done the deal at x amount but of course because of the 18 month period obviously fluctuated a little bit yeah yeah okay yeah but, but it, i mean it, it wasn't you know it, it wasn't by a huge amount it was just um uh something i hadn't considered before in my naivety Yes, I imagine most people wouldn't actually. You would think you've done a deal on this and let's let's get it over the line. It's the first time you've done it. And I think this was the first time you'd sold a business, is it, Dan? No, I have sold um, my first business, uh, which was very, um, yeah, it was a very small business. I had a jewellery design business in Hatton Garden, yeah. which, uh, which I sold just before I started the agency um, okay. in 89. Okay. But that was a much simpler deal. So when the offer came in, did they did they structure it a kind of a cash amount up front and then an earn out? Is that how it works? I think that's kind of what you normally see, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. There was a certain amount up front and then an 18-month earn out. Okay. Is, is that 18 months very typical? I get a sense that it might be more like two or three years these days, but perhaps back in 2007, that was the norm. I think it depends about the, the business and the agency to a certain extent and how that dovetails with um, the acquirer, because I, I was keen to get out as soon as I could. If I could have done it in a month, I would have done. So I was keen to get on and move on to do other things. If, and I think that they, 
their feeling was they needed to be pragmatic. They didn't want me to feel that I was going to be tied to three years and then not want to do the deal. Mm. Um, but equally, I think they were hoping that after 18 months, I would uh, feel very comfortable there and be happy with what was going on and stay on, which um, the former didn't really happen, but the latter did. I did actually end up staying for five years. Oh, so it was a really nice merge then. It was a really nice acquisition. <laughs> yeah. A slightly loaded question, perhaps. It, it was. Look, at the end of the day, the the, uh, the board, the directors were fabulous. Um, they were really good to me. They um, allowed me to be relatively autonomous. Um, there were some things that, for me, weren't particularly, I wasn't particularly comfortable with. Some were just purely practical. I had a 80-mile round trip every day in the car, three hours a day minimum, uh, sometimes four or five. Wow. just to get there and back. Um, the kind of creative work they did didn't really ring my bell. Um, they were, the kind of work wasn't particularly creative, which is where I get my, uh, you know, a bit of a buzz from. I've got to enjoy that. So having said that, you know, I had to, I, I decided to take a, a practical view as well. You know, I'd, I'd sold, then the recession hit and, uh, you know, the shit hit the fan. And did I want to, for the first time in 25 years, I had a, um, uh, a known salary rather than, you know, things in it ebbing and flowing. So I thought, well, maybe it's sensible to keep, stay put and, and kind of steady the ship, which is what I did. Yeah, that's, I think that's very wise. And I, I think the fear of a lot of people is if they sell their agency, they've gone from being their, their master of their own destiny to suddenly having to report into a CEO or a boss again and get a monthly paycheck with some paid holiday, which would be brilliant, to be honest. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, how does that kind of cultural fit? But obviously with you, that happening right at the peak of the uh, credit crunch by the sounds of things, mm. it was probably very uh, good timing for you. Yes, it was. Uh, and just coming back to the um, uh, this kind of dating aspect, and I, I, I think that's where it's so important. I think you really, I think you've got to, when you're having discussions with uh, a potential acquirer, I think you have to be so comfortable um, and you have to consider all different scenarios that may play out once you're acquired, yeah. worst case and best case, because you have to think, okay, what is, if this, if this goes a bit pear-shaped, what is my position and how do I feel about how I'm going to work with this person? And do I think they're going to allow me some latitude so I don't feel that I'm all, all of a sudden I'm under the cosh and I have to, you know, I have to, you know, put my hand up every time I want to do something. And that was what's so great about TGV is um, they trusted me to run things the way I wanted to. Um, and, and there was very little uh, micromanagement. And I think that's really important, especially if you're used to being self-employed or having your own business for many years. Um, you don't want to feel suffocated and hate what you do. And then you, then you might feel trapped. If you've got a three-year earn out, and you, haven't got, you can't get your money for three years, but you're at a place that you hate. You're, it's, it's not a great place to be. Well, do you know, a good friend of mine, very good friend of mine, sold his PR agency a few years ago now. And I think he walked away before he completed the earnout because the extra money from the earnout wasn't worth how working for this new company made him feel. So for him, it was just a walk away situation. Mm. And I don't know the, the structure of the deal, but I have read a few times that, the valuation, the cash up front price is only is important, but perhaps more important are the terms of the sale. 
you know, what, what, how am I going to have to work for how long? How does that structure? And I think you just illustrated that really there quite nicely is that um, you've got to get that piece right as well because you could be unhappy yeah. driving for four hours every day for a long time. Yes. Well, well that's actually a good point also on um, just a note on restrictive covenants. So obviously when you enter this relationship, um, the period the period or, or the, the moment that you leave for whatever reason, before or after or earn out, you will inevitably have some uh, restrictive covenants within your contract. And at the time, I, I would have liked to have, have perhaps pushed a bit further on those because they were really constraining. When I did decide to leave, they were more constraining than I had thought. And I, I, I can't remember at the time whether or not I had taken that seriously enough or I, the, the problem is you, you don't want it to become too much of an issue because then you're flagging up, look, you know, I'm out of there as soon as, as soon as things, as soon as I've got my money, I'm, I'm gone, which, you know, they may realize that's going to happen anyway. But if you push too hard on those restricted covenants, then they can think, well, this guy isn't really committed to the cause. Yeah. So I, I took a view on it and it was a bit painful. I had to, when I left, I had to, um, keep my head down and not do very much for about six months. I think it might have been nine months for certain things. Um, but it, it wasn't the end of the world. It was just, I just think you need to factor in these things. I mean, you need to go with your eyes open. And it's very yeah. di- easy to be distracted by the prize. So you're looking at the, you know, the pounds, shillings and pence and what you can get out of it. Um, but you've really got to consider, okay, what is going to happen in these scenarios? Am I going to be comfortable with what I'm committing to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that makes sense. And it, actually, there's a few really relevant points I want to kind of draw back on there. One is obviously valuation. How do you, how did you arrive at the valuation? Was that, was there much of a difference between your expectations and the, and the acquirers? But also, when it comes to looking at things like those restrictive covenants, what kind of advice did you take, could you take to help you understand um, what you are signing up for, I guess? So two big questions, I suppose. Valuation and alignment with the buyer and then, you know, advisors. What stage did you get advisors involved? Well, in terms of valuation, um, I let them do make the first bid, which as far as I'm concerned, I, I think that's the better way to go. Uh, and then I negotiated from there. Um, which was um, obviously there was toing and froing, and we got to a, a valuation point that we were both happy with. Yeah. Um, what was more contentious was the heads of terms, and then the um, the nitty gritty of the contracts, and that's when it starts to get a little. That's when it gets serious, and it can get a little bit heated. Um, Is that head- when you brought- advisors in then so kind of a legal advisor or yes i brought it for memory i think the heads of terms certainly after the heads of terms were agreed um i I had lawyers in place um i used my own judgment with the heads of terms and also a uh, a relative of mine who's an entrepreneur we just ran them past him um what i didn't want to do is start racking up huge lawyers bills before then and I think I got the lawyers involved at the latter stages when I was happy with what was on the table um, and then it was a case of getting lawyers and uh, my accountants involved uh, for advice in, in their particular fields the lawyers 
I, I would say one of the biggest um, lessons that I learned about the uh, about bringing professional advisors is a whatever you think they're going to cost you. Just well, first of all, I was shocked when somebody told me how much I should allow for for my accountant. Well, no, my accountant told me what I'm talking about. Uh, someone else told me, and then my accountant said, I was shocked. I, you know, we're a small agency, you know, we were less than 15 people. And I thought, what's the accountant got to do? You know, he will comment on things and supply yeah. financials. That was a big shock, his fee. The lawyers, um, I asked them for a quote, obviously being lawyers, then they're not going to uh, commit to a fixed fee. Although I understand that, that you can get that, that kind of arrangement now. But one of the one of the tips I received, which I, I I really must impart to anybody that is considering doing this, when it comes to lawyers, the best piece of advice I can give you is insist, once you're happy with them and you're happy with the quote or estimate that you've received, you insist that they send you weekly updates of what's on the clock. Okay. How much they've spent that week. Because it's very easy and very quick for things to rocket and go through the roof if it's not checked. Yes. And I tell you, that really paid off because, I mean, I have to say the lawyers were terrific um, and also impress upon them that, you know, I'm not saying plead poverty, but impress upon them how you want to utilise them for their best skills. But if there are things that you can do, because a lot of it is, is common sense, but you don't really want the lawyers... You're, you're talking to your lawyer, you're, their lawyer talking to their lawyer. So what we did was uh, myself and the acquiring director, director of the acquiring agency, we had lots of dialogue between us and negotiated and agreed on certain points. Then we fed it back to our lawyer saying, this is what we've agreed and allow them to comment. Otherwise, you're going to go through the roof. Anyway, just coming back to the idea of asking for a weekly account. What it meant was at the end of the, um, or very close to the end of the transaction when the uh, solicitor put their bill in or um, notified me of the account, it was way over, way, way, way over what um, we were originally anticipated. And I looked over the history and for the first two, three, four weeks, they were very good at reporting the state of account. Then it all ebbed away. Now, I know they were busy and it's probably a pain for them. But nevertheless, that they got very lax with that. So I flagged this up and they were very good and very decent. They said, look, we fully accept. We promised to do this and we didn't. So we will deduct, um, I won't say the exact amount, but they deducted five figures off their bill. Wow, okay. Yeah. So, so big, big numbers then, isn't it, really? That just gives you a sense as to the size of the fees you were paying. Yes. Yes, a lot. I, I mean, if I can tell you the, um, yes, the fees were high and I do think I got a pretty good deal uh, and they were very, very good. Um, I'm sure you can shop around and, and, you know, get better deals, but I think you've got to go in with your eyes open and either work to a fixed cost or, or insist on that weekly account and do as much of it as you can yourself yeah. um, and just let them rubber stamp it or comment on it. I'm always surprised by the size of a lawyer's bill when it arrives. One arrived in my inbox today and I thought, sorry, how much for sending a few letters? But that's the profession, I suppose, isn't it? You, you have to pay for good uh, good advisory. But keeping control of those costs is a, is a good tip. On the accountancy side, um, 
my accountancy uh, practice, um, I always have my doubts about them. Uh, it's one of those things, it's about like, a bit like changing your bank. To change your accountant just feels like far too <laughs> big deal. Yeah. And every, every year I would think, oh, I've got to, I've got to change them. I never got around to it. So um, I, they worked on the uh, financial side and assisted me with that. But they were totally, totally incompetent. And what I ended up doing, I ended up doing, I would say, 80% of the accountancy work myself because they were, they were just incompetent. And it, it's, not, it's not rocket science and you can do your own research and you can look at best ways to structure the deal. And it, it came to the point where I was actually going back to them and advising them. So they had structured a few bits for me and I'd looked at it and I thought, if I do it that way, then I can't remember the exact details, but something like my capital gains will be double or triple or whatever it is. Surely there's a way to structure it this way where that won't happen. And I went back to them and I said, you know, what about this idea rather, you know, rather, rather than this way? And they said, that's a good idea. Oh yeah, yeah, you could, oh, you could do it like that. And I thought, oh my God, this is like, Here's my invoice for accountancy. Sir. Exactly. I should have done. So um, I would say that, yeah, make sure you've got a good accountant. And I think it's a good, even if you're not considering an exit, please review your accountants. If they are not amazing and proactive and entrepreneurial, and entrepreneurial I think is a really important point, rather than just number crunches, then start looking around because they will be invaluable um, to work with. I'm very fortunate. I have a great accountant, so I'm very happy with that. Um, not that I've ever sold a, a, an agency business, but um, it's interesting that I always, always found generally accountants tell you what happened in the past. I want someone to help me think about the future. Exactly. And that's, I think I get that from my accountancy practice, so I'm happy with that. Um, okay, so lawyers and uh, accountants, obviously, were there any other advisors involved in that, apart from the finance house that was obviously advising the, the acquirer, T, TGV, I think you said. Yes. As, as that's the whole advisory team there. Yes, yeah, but pretty much. Uh, I mean, as I say, I was very lucky to lean on uh, my cousin who's um, who gave me some very, very good advice and uh, guidance through the process. So I would say, again, if, if you know anybody that um, has either, <clears throat> it doesn't matter what sector they're in, if they have experience of this or they're just pretty good business people, um, then just, you know, if they don't mind, then just ask them for some some thoughts on things. And I think that will, A, give you peace of mind, give you um, a uh, objective opinion on what's what's going on. And hopefully it won't cost you anything more than sending them a, a case of champagne when the deal's done. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think you're right. Someone that has had experience of selling any kind of business, you know, and is a bit... Is a bit um, has some um, bruises, some blue blacks, as someone once said to me. I've covered in blue blacks from business, he said. Mm. I thought it was an interesting expression. You know, he's got some battle scars. Yes. He's giving you some invaluable advice. Okay. So going back to the valuation, was that based on an income multiple, a net profit multiple? Can you remember what that, um, where that valuation arose from? Because I think most people we, we will be wondering, how do I put a number on this? What's the right amount I should be thinking of for a sale and if you if you're happy to share and fine if you're not 
what was the breakup of that between upfront cash percentage wise and what was uh, paid over that 18 month earnout? Um, well, just, just going back to the valuation, yeah, it, it was based on um, turnover um, assets. And um, I think there were some intangibles in there as well. Um, so that's broadly how it was structured. Um, in terms of the breakdown, um, it was around uh, 25 to 30% in cash. Yeah. And the rest as an earn out over 18 months. So when you got that cash, that was the day you went out and bought a load of champagne and had a great night out, I'm guessing. We, uh, yeah, we celebrated, yeah. <laughs> yeah, good. You need to celebrate these wins in life, don't you? So that's important. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And then after the after the 18 months, you've got your final payment. You obviously stuck around for another three or four years, which probably worked really well for the acquiring agency because they've got that stability. What was it like for the members of the team in your agency? Did they stick around for a long time or did you find that they came to the new space? That I guess you moved into their offices. And how did that kind of cultural fit work? Yes, um, only uh, two or three came over to the agency. Okay. Um, I think mostly that was about the similar concerns I had. Uh, well, yeah, one was location. We were northwest London. There was southeast London, so actually Kent. Um, it wasn't convenient for a lot of my staff. The other was particularly my creatives. Um, it wasn't really a particularly creative environment. And although some of the more creative ones did come over, I always felt that they wouldn't be there for very long. Um, but even though probably based in London, doing creative work in London, not kind of commuting out to Kent. Yeah. And other people, others uh, found it as an opportunity to, to do different things or move on or, or do other, other stuff. So if you were to, I guess, if you were to go through this process again, what things would you, what would you do differently? What would, what, or I guess rephrasing the question, what kind of key tips would you have for others then that are thinking of going through this process based on your learnings? I think there's, there's quite a few things. If, if I'm talking agency specific, I think that I'm sure most agencies try to do this anyway, but we, we were very project-based as Rand's wrote brand communications. Um, and although we tried to uh, push things to more sort of retained or, or regular work, it, the mix wasn't that great, which obviously impacts the valuation because there's no guarantee of, of that work coming over. So get as many contracts in place as you can. The other thing is I would, I would think very carefully about your own brand. I mean, we actually rebranded for strategic and for exactly these reasons um, a little while before. It was probably about 18 months before this all happened because it, it got to a point that where we were very much generalists. We were a design agency rather than, you know, which, of which there are thousands. Um, and although we were never going to be unique, we actually, it, although our strength was in branding, we weren't over with that. We didn't really push that that much. And I thought it'd be a good idea to take stock of that and look at a rebrand for ourselves. And instead of just doing that internally, I brought out, I brought in an external consultant to give us an objective view, which I'd highly recommend um, because, you know, we were branding companies all day long, but you shouldn't be doing your, your own 
uh, everything yourself. So he guided us through and we went through a rebranding process and we moved from Rhodes Design to Rhodes Brand Communications. And we wanted to be more famous for um, our branding work and our strategic branding work. And I mean, brand communications is broad enough also to encompass the other bits that we do. So we kind of repositioned ourselves and we saw a very positive impact on that um, quite early on. And I believe that had we not have done that, we wouldn't have been acquired. I think what was great is because we, we brought some definition to our proposition, what it did was the acquiring agency could see a very um, clear complementary skills and disciplines between what they were doing. They were weak on branding, but very strong on strong on exhibitions and other aspects that we, uh, we were weaker on. So it made for a much healthier marriage and it made us stand out a bit more and by the time that we'd had that date or, or I'd replied to that ad they'd already heard of us and they knew of us which was great because then we started, yeah we started to get coverage in the um, design press and as Rhodes brand communications so they're already a little bit softened up and, and knew of us so that was great so I, I think the look at your own brand I think do as much as you can in terms of um, systemizing internal processes and develop a handbook that anybody could follow. Obviously, you can't write a creative handbook, but I'm talking about everything else. I mean, you know, everything from how the phone systems work through to, I mean, you, you may well have handbooks like that anyway, but review them. Is there anything else in there? If somebody new came over tomorrow to take over without any management there and you handed them this book, would they be able to run the agency? apart from the creative side, from then on. This is something that I think all agencies are really weak at. You, know, you might spend the time and the effort to create a fairly process-oriented document. This is how we enter a new job onto the jobs board, how we set up our CRM, how we set up our project management platform. Mm. But I would wager that most of those documents, once written, start gathering dust somewhere on G Drive or OneFile yeah. or wherever it is. And, and don't get looked at again. So it's about systems and processes that help you to are actually applied and used every day. Yeah. And that really builds on um, the. You must have or heard of or read the the, the E Myth by Michael Gerber, a book where he talks about having the systems and processes in place so the business can run without you. But then you've got a business rather than, as he calls it, the worst paying job in the world. Or no, the worst job in the world. Sorry. And I yeah. Really like yeah. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And I think that, um, yeah, that was another point I was going to make. I, th I think it's really important to make yourself superfluous yeah. if you're the MD. Um, because, you know, if it's a, a well-oiled machine that can run without you, that's very attractive to an acquirer because you're probably going to be their biggest expense and overhead. And then they get some sort of um, economies of scale if you, as and when you do leave. Um so although in other instances, you know, that they may be desperate to keep you and, you, you, you know, you're the person, person that they're buying. Um, so I think that's both of those are really important. And also not just about um, the systems that we talked about, but also um, compliance and um, uh, all sorts of all the policies that best practice policies you need to have in place, you know, um, one of the benefits that we had is we did a lot of work because we applied for public sector work and also we did the investors in, in people 
yeah. uh, program, which is also actually very, very much worth doing yeah. uh, on every front, including it, it was added value to the acquirer. Um, you, you, you end up addressing all those issues anyway. And then at the end of it, you've got your handbook and your systems and procedures and who's responsible for what. So have that all, all in place. You know, we talked about this being called, you know, being match fit. And that is, that, that is really um, one of the key components about being match fit because th there will be a lot of due diligence. There'll be a lot of um, uh, tick boxing by the uh, finance house that will probably um, uh, be the intermediate in all of this. So if you can be in good shape with that, then you can focus on, on the other bits as well and make yourself attractive, particularly if you've got a nice differentiated or even better, maybe a niche uh, offering. Yeah. Um, I think, sorry, Karen. I was just going to say, Dan, it's interesting what you are talking about there in terms of working on your own brand, even a branding agency as you were, saw the value of going externally to get that support. But one of the things I do a lot of now is I help client side marketeers to engage with agencies. And one of the most common things I hear them say is from our side, all agencies look the same. Yes. It's really hard to tell you apart. So not only by working on your own brand, will you make an easier and more attractive proposition for a sale, you might actually make your life a bit easier in terms of clients and acquiring new clients. Yeah. Yeah. The, the other thing I would, um, I would say about, this process is to try and understand what it is that the acquirer, acquirer is buying. Mm. What I mean by that is, are they buying your client list? Are they buying your contracts? Are they buying your people? Are they buying you? Um, <clears throat> are they buying you because you've got complimentary services? I think it's important to keep your, if you do understand that, it will help the negotiation and it'll help to understand where the power might lie in that relationship. Mm. So as you'd expect, the, major, the the power in the relationship lies primarily with the acquirer, but that does ebb and flow during the relationship. So for example, as you get closer to purchase, depending on the circumstances, you may have, may have slightly more power. Because if, if they've committed, they're committed, and you can see how keen they are, you may be able to push things a little bit. I know at, at the end, of, and the other thing, I think you, you, will, you will probably see things get quite heated in the final weeks of when the deal is done. I know that I got a call from the intermediary telling me that I was pissing off the uh, acquirer because of um, a point that I was standing my ground on. Yeah. Um, and he was uh, he was implying that, that this was going to ruin the deal. Oh, really? Okay. And of course, by then you've invested quite a lot of time, probably quite a lot of professional fees, advisory fees. So that must have been a bit of a point of leverage. It was, but but they're into it as well. They're into it d d deep as well. So um, you need to kind of get a feel for, for where that's going. So, you know, do I just wave the white flag and concede on this and we move forward? Or do I stand my ground and test them and see if they'll go? And, and it's very much a case of, I think that, you know, push it as far as you can, um, but without, without burning bridges so that you can, you can go back on that or you can revisit it if you need to. Um, 
But as I say, things can get quite tetchy towards the end that as, as you try and finalise and, you, and you're pushing and you're pulling in different directions, depending on what your, what your approach to um, approach the whole deal is. I, I was, um, yeah, I probably was a pain in the arse at the end, but, but we got there in the end. So if you are, let's say you are still back in running your uh, brand communications, road brand communications now, and um, you were thinking it might be a quite a nice idea, I'd like to exit, I've probably got five years before I'm totally knackered and burnt out and I don't want to be doing this anymore. Because this is kind of where I got to with my agency was a bit like, what do I do next? And I think it might take me five years to get to a point where I'm ready for an exit. Do I want to invest that time? And I figured it might take me five years to you know, sort my brand out, get my positioning right, build up my client base, get my systems and processes and stuff in place like that. Um, what would you suggest is the kind of order of play? What would you work on first? Where would you start to make changes to get yourself to a point where, as you said, you're matched? I think you can work on a lot of those things in tandem. I think first and foremost, you need to work on your own brand because if if you haven't got a clearly defined proposition, and I'm sure branding agencies say, well, we do because we're a branding agency, uh, but if you don't have something that, that has some clarity and that you're not um, 100% happy with, then you need to address it. And even if you don't change it, just have a look at it. You know, is it right? What, what, is, what is going on in the market? And start to understand, and perhaps with your help, Andy, things like where you've got agencies pitching for jobs. You've got a lot of understanding and getting genuine feedback about where agencies are falling down and what it is the client, in its broadest terms, is looking for or buying. And obviously, that's going to depend client to client. But what are, the, what are all the Me Too agencies doing? And what are the ones that stand out and doing things better and a winning business? What is it that they're doing that's, um, that's making them successful? Mm. Um, and also talk, talk to people that um, M&A companies, merger and acquisition companies that are active in this space, sound them out, talk to them about you're, you're considering an exit. Do you have any advice? Number one. Number two, do you have any advice in the context of um, clients, agency clients, or clients that are looking or have looked at recently to acquire? What, did it, what is it that they're looking on their shopping list for when they're looking um, for an agency? What is attractive to them? And I'm not saying, you know, you still got to be true to yourself. I'm not saying, you know, change your business because that's, that's where the, the attraction is going to be because that's not authentic. Stay authentic. But, be own, but, but consider what the market's buying rather than necessarily what you, you're selling. Yes. And then work on that a little bit. Well, it's good old-fashioned marketing, I suppose, isn't it? Understanding what the audience is looking for and then aligning your proposition to that. Exactly. And then build your brand. You know, work on the brand. Tweak it, don't tweak it, whatever you do. Try and push it out there and, and don't underestimate the importance of... Um, publicity within your peer group and within the design community because that's where your acquirer will be looking so be visible in that arena not just looking to be visible about where you're going to pick up your next clients mm, so and, and that's where and i was surprised we didn't really have a lot of coverage i didn't think in the design press but tgv who i'd never heard of um had heard of us and knew our work so 
that was great. Um, so I think that's that's something you can do. And you you know assign different tasks within people in the agency. You know, I met, I gave somebody overall responsibility for getting the handbook produced. Um, somebody else to maybe look at compliance. Somebody else maybe to look at your own marketing and brand. And if you've got different leaders working in tandem, then that process can be shortcut. And in the meantime, if you're putting feelers out to different M&A companies, then it's quite likely that they'll knock on your door before you're even ready to go out. Yeah. And I wouldn't, I would also wouldn't stress too much about, yeah, but we're, we're going to wait. We want to go for growth and it's, you know, the market's been crap the last three months. We haven't done anything with COVID and things are rubbish and, you know, we'll leave another year or two. Well, that's not necessarily, um, don't necessarily have to push it into the long grass if it's something you're interested in because you don't have to accept an offer. You can just see how it goes. And, you know, we were in a, a downward trajectory, but we still, we still got a decent valuation. We still got a decent price. Um, so there are people out there that want good, good agencies. So it's, you, you, I guess as well, if, if you're open to having conversations, you're going to learn an awful lot from those first few conversations, even if it doesn't transfer into an eventual sale or a deal of some sort. You're still going to start learning what are these acquirers looking for? How do I start to position and package my business, getting it ready for sale? Yeah. Dan, thank you so much. There was a huge amount in there. I'm going to have to listen back to this about four or five times, I think. Take some more serious notes. Um, but thank you for sharing your experiences. I'm sure there are people in the Agency Squared community that will take a tremendous amount of value out of that. Uh, of course, you are now still working as a branding consultant. You're prying your trade. Yes. As yeah. it were. So still if people are looking for assistance in that respect, I'm sure you'd be delighted to, to hear from people. Yeah, absolutely. Or if any of your, well, first of all, thanks for inviting me on this. And um, I hope it is of some value and some help to the people that are going to uh, listen to it. And apologies if I banged on a little too long. Um, but also, you know, I'm quite happy if anybody, uh, if any of your uh, contacts or agencies um, want to ask me questions or, or sound things out, I'm more than happy to uh, speak to them if that's going to be helpful. Oh, perfect, Dan. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Is there a uh, or a... Probably email or um, or a, or a call, either. Okay. Fine. I'll, put, I'll put your uh, details in the show notes, but obviously not till you get full of uh, loads of spam emails. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Let's not do that. Put up your inbox full of rubbish, do we? No. Dan, thanks again. It's been brilliant talking to you. Pleasure. Uh, let's get a beer once this terrible lockdown is over. It'd be nice to have a glass of something cold. Sounds perfect. Cheers, Andy.